Good evening and good day everybody. Welcome to episode 10 of Ask Abhijit. We are into double digits and we are just getting started. So today's episode is history. I think it's everyone's favorite topic and we have a whole lot of questions lined up. Very interesting questions. I've got so many questions. I'll have to do I don't know lots of shows. So to those of you whose questions I am not able to answer today, please don't be discouraged. Be patient. I'm going to do many more of these episodes. and we are going to deal with all these interesting questions so today we're going to have some very interesting questions but before i begin uh, an announcement the ask abhijit show is now on spotify so if that's what you like if you like to listen to things instead of watching it then i invite you to check it out the link is in the description below so before we begin today's uh, discussion or question answer session let me begin with a story So 2000 years ago in the year 1 AD or thereabouts the Roman empire had conquered most of Europe so this is the map of the Roman empire around that time thereabouts it conquered all almost all of Europe right as you can see and it also conquered parts of what is now called Germany so it is around this time that a Roman officer a Roman military officer of Germanic origin whose name was armenius this guy rebelled against the romans and he unified the the germanic peoples the various germanic tribes he was from the cheruski tribe so armenius rebelled he united the various germanic tribes and he led them into battle against the romans this is a very famous battle called the battle of teutoburg forest it happened in the year 9 ad and in this battle armenius and his alliance of germanic tribes destroyed annihilated three roman legions and completely wiped out the roman uh, military presence from the germanic regions and this battle essentially permanently ended the roman imperial presence in the germanic lands and it precipitated the eventual decline and collapse of the roman empire and it prevented the romanization of the germanic peoples so this is one of the most decisive battles in known history and armenius is today recognizes one of the greatest germans of all time so it, that is uh, as of today in 2021 now in 2009 the year 2009 was the 2000th anniversary of the battle of teutoburg forest and there was almost no celebration or commemoration of this event and of this great person in germany and the reason for this is that armenius is not part of the history syllabus of most german schools and colleges so that's why they did not even know about this great one of the greatest germans of all time so this illustrates why history is so important if you don't know your history you don't know how great you may have been in the past and you don't know how great the history of your nation and your civilization is and that applies even more to us in india because all of our history has been hidden for us and the history we are taught is all distorted and sanitized history it has a certain agenda it it serves as a as an instrument of of essentially of uh, social engineering so that's why it is important for us to learn our true history and that's what we are doing through these question and answer sessions so with that said let me get into question number 
this is by Anish Deshai. Desai. Anish was asking this repeatedly. So here we are, Anish. I'm taking your question. So Anish asks, what are your thoughts about the Sanawali civilization? Was there technology ahead of the timeline like the chariot found in the place? And why is there no more research done in this place? Good question. Sanawali was not a separate civilization. It is an archaeological site. It is an archaeological settlement. Uh, the local tradition in this region is that Sanawali was one of the villages that Lord Krishna negotiated for with the Kauravas in an attempt to prevent the Mahabharata war and that the negotiation failed. So that is the ancient lore, the ancient tradition of this region that Sanawali is one of those ancient villages. So now we have found people stumbled across this uh, archaeological site and some a little bit of archaeological exc excavations has been done and we have found evidence of a chariot. We have found evidence of Rig Vedic style burials of people. So the Rig Veda does prescribe, I mean, in the Rig Veda, there are many various forms of uh, various funerary practices that are uh, that are mentioned. And one of these is this burial, this form of burial. Burial in, so the what we find in Sanawali is that uh, several individuals, including a female warrior, have been buried in elaborate ornate coffins with a great deal of funerary items. And there is, there, there is the presence of the war chariot. And the, the, they, they have also discovered a weapon of various forms of weaponry, including uh, bronze or copper uh, swords, antennae swords, which bear a striking resemblance to certain similar swords that have found that have been found all the way to the west in Mesopotamia. So that is what we know about Sonali. It is an ancient site, very ancient, about four, four and a half thousand years old, or maybe more, I, if I am correct. So that's how the, it's a very ancient site. It is pro definitely uh, around the time of the so-called Harappan era of our civilization. And it is the oldest, it is the first evidence of chariots within India. And if it's the first, it's the oldest one. There may be many, many, many more examples and, uh, and ancient remains of chariots, but we have not yet uh, looked for them. So it's a very significant uh, discovery. It's the first time we have found chariots. It's the first time we have found this mode of burial. And these seem to be important people who have been buried in this manner, including a female warrior, which tells us that females could go to war in India. They had the same status as men. So it, it uh, throws a great deal of new light on what we already suspected and knew for a long time. But it gives us proof of chariots, of the equality and, and high status of women in ancient India, and much more. So it is a very significant find, and we only know a little bit about it, because the excavations that have been done, they cover only a small percentage of the entire site. There is a whole lot more right there that has not yet been looked into. So I hope in the future, in the coming years, the archaeologists will spend more time and then and money and excavate this site properly. I think there could be a lot more waiting to be discovered right there. So it's a very significant find. It is not a separate civilization. It is one of the local sites of our ancient enormously vast civilization, which which uh, spread, which was spread in extent all the way from the current borders of Iran, the Balochistan area, all the way to east of Assam and Manipur, all the way north to Afghanistan, all the way south to Sri Lanka. That is the extent of Indian civilization. And this is one of the sites that we have discovered. It's a very significant site. It's a, it's a very important site. It busts many myths about uh, that have been propagated about India. 
and it has given rise to certain controversies. As always, the Marxists and leftists will try and twist the findings to suit their agenda and their narrative. So that's ongoing. The only thing is, look, look more into it. We need more excavations right there, and more truths will emerge out of the soil of our ancient land. So that's my thoughts about Sanawli. Currently, we have very little data. The data we have is extremely interesting and intriguing. We need more data. I want the archaeologists to get going and do their work. Go, go, go there, excavate the place, and do what you are paid for. Do what the country is paying you for. So that's about Sanawli. Good question, Anish. Okay, next question. Preeti asks, what about Ram Setu below, um, sinking below the sea level? Mm, good question. I mean, people should ask these questions. The Ram Setu is, now we, now we know it, it's an ancient man-made bridge. It is the oldest known example of monumental architecture and probably the oldest example of, of any kind of architecture. If you can accurately date it, which has not been done yet, but it's clearly man-made. So the question arises, if this is a bridge that connected India and Sri Lanka and it was constructed by people, by human beings, as is described in the Ramayana, then why is it below the sea level today? That is a brilliant question and I wish more people would ask this. So the answer is this. The sea levels of our planet fluctuate. They don't fluctuate from day to day. Those are tides. That is not, not the fluctuation I'm talking about. There are climatic fluctuations that happen over a time frame of thousands of years. So about 20, 25,000 years ago, we had uh, about 25 to 20,000 years ago, we had the last glacial maximum. That was the the uh, high, the the most, that was the highest extent of the last ice age. So there is the time when the ice sheets across the planet were at their maximum extent. So that was the last glacial maximum around 20,000 years ago. So that is when the sea levels were at the lowest. Now, I'm not saying Ram Situ was 20,000 years old. I am giving an example of a time when sea levels were much below what they are today, maybe even 100 meters below where they are today. So that would definitely connect India and Sri Lanka, and there was no need to build a bridge at that time. So, and then the global warming started. Climate change is a reality. It is a natural process, also man-made nowadays. But... It has always existed. So after the last glacial maximum, the Earth's temperature started warming slowly and the sea levels rose. Then again, around uh, 12,900 years ago, you had this younger Dryas event, which is most likely a comet or meteor, meteoric, meteorite uh, impact in Greenland, most likely, which caused a sudden burst of global cooling. And it again rose the sea levels for some time. And then the sea levels went, went back down again. So sea levels rise and fall, rise and fall based on climate. Sometimes the climate is hotter, sometimes it's colder, and that's why we have these things. Now we have found a, an ancient city called Dwarka, exactly where the Mahabharata predicts it. It's under under the sea, quite a bit under the sea. So it is said that this in the Mahabharata it says that this city sank under the under the water under the sea because of an earthquake. So that's an under under sea structure, a, a an ancient an entire ancient city. We also have many temples in southern India, which are currently under the sea, which indicates that they were built, they were constructed when the sea levels were much lower. So that is the reason why the Ram Setu is currently under the sea, because it was most likely constructed at a time when the sea levels were lower, which means it was 
a time when the climate was much colder than it is today. So when was the last time? That is for geologists and scientists to accurately determine. But it is a very long time ago, my friends. It's not in the last two, four, five, six thousand years. It's extremely ancient. That's what it tells us. So these are the clues that give us an indication of the actual antiquity of India's civilization. So the Ram Setu is minimum 7,000 years old, probably much older than that, which, which would give us a, an approximate date of the Ramayan. And the Ramayan post-dates the Rig Veda. The Rig Veda came before the Ramayan. So you can this, this gives us an indication of how ancient our collective civilizational memory is, and our traditions are, and our culture is, and our civilization is. So great question. The reason the Ram Setu is under the sea level is because it was constructed at a time when the climate was much colder than it is today and the sea levels were much below what they are today because there was much more ice in the north and the south near the ice caps, near the, near the poles of the earth. So that's why most of this, most much of the water on the surface of the planet was concentrated in ice and that's why the sea levels were much below. And that's why it is it is not sunk below the sea level. It was constructed at a level that is below the present day sea level. Good question. Okay. Uh, um, if the Aryan invasion theory is wrong, then why do we see a significant cultural difference between North India and South India? Excellent question. These are the questions we need to discuss. These are the questions we need to discuss among each other openly and frankly, so that we understand the truth about India's civilization. Because there are all these oversimplifications flying around and, and being passed off as, as academic uh, facts when they are not. So this is a very good question once again. We do see differences, cultural differences, so to say, between North India and South India. But you see the same sort of cultural difference between, North, uh, between West India and East India, and North India and West India and North India and South India and East India. Every See, here's the thing. India's culture is, is very diverse. Okay, India has one single civilization, but it has a great deal of an immense amount of local diversity of culture. There are these incredible local manifestations of the same culture. Correct. You have the Kamakya Devi temple in... in uh, in Assam, which is uh, one of the greatest uh, temples to the to the mother goddess, so that's in Assam. They worship uh, this this goddess Kamakya Devi in a certain specific manner. You have Hinglaj Mata Temple in Balochistan, which is far to the west. It's thousands of kilometers west of Kamakya Devi Temple, and it is the same goddess they are worshiping in a different way. And you have similar temples in the north and in the south and throughout the geography of India. These are the great temples of the of the great. Uh, female divinity of the of the divine feminine, right? It's the same goddess that is worshipped under different names in different parts of India. You have these Jyotirlingas, which worship the Lord Shiva in all across the geography of India, across the length and breadth of India. They use different languages to worship the Lord Shiva. They have different traditions, different cultures. The customs may look very different, and yet they are worshipping the same divinity, the same god. That is the thing. All these so-called cultural differences are superficial. 
they are cosmetic that's what that's what meets the untrained uneducated eye i'm not saying you are uneducated it is that we are not taught these things about our own culture and civilization in our education system and that's why we all remain uneducated about what really matters so that's the thing these local cultural manifestations are manifestations of the same culture and same civilization in a variety of different ways that is the thing so yes these various manifestations of culture in south india are very different from other parts of india right but these are the same this these are all of the same culture the cholas the greatest of tamil dynasties one of the greatest of all indian dynasties conquered the whole of southeast asia and what culture did they spread across southeast asia they spread hinduism and sanskrit right i mean what culture is this is there a cultural difference the way this culture is practiced in thailand is different the way it's practiced in burma is different in indonesia in the philippines in myanmar in laos in vietnam in cambodia it's practiced in different ways but it's the same culture you get it so that's the thing it's the same culture practiced in a variety of local ways and this is the same culture that was present across eurasia all the way westwards to ireland and iceland the same culture it looks so different but it's the same underlying culture it's the same underlying traditions it's the same pantheon of gods given different names and worshiped in different ways so this aryan invasion theory we'll go into it in detail in a future episode we'll have a separate episode for that only or maybe a number of episodes for that but this is the answer in brief that it is the same culture and same civilization and the most important thing we have to remember is india is not a monoculture the west is a monoculture that's just one religion and one way of doing things and in the past if you if you try to diverge from that they would burn you alive or they would uh, do various horrific things to you that's why they they were able to establish a monoculture across europe and it was at the expense of the indigenous native indo-european traditions right so that that ancient culture it survives only in india today and it is a very very diverse and plural culture this it's a, it has a plurality of manifestations but it is all the manifestations of the same ancient culture and traditions which date back more than 10000 years so that is the answer to your question it's an excellent question these are the questions we need to discuss more akash asks what do you think was happening in northeast and southern india when the harappan civilization was at its zenith excellent question it's it's kind of tie in to the previous question so we have evidence of a vast urban highly developed highly technologically sophisticated civilization in the sapta sindhu region and thereabouts it includes uh, madhya pradesh haryana punjab uh, parts of afghanistan baluchistan sindh gujarat saurashtra even parts of maharashtra etc it is an enormous geographical area that has evidence of this incredible urban era of india's civilization it is greater than mesopotamia and and the so called holy land and egypt and all of that put together it's much larger than that so it's the greatest ancient civilization of all time and it is described as a separate civilization in our textbooks and in our schools and colleges universities it's like it's a different civilization there were different people and us we are something else so they are trying to imply that there is no connection between the harappans and us today 
and they are trying to imply that there were different civilizations in India. There was a Harappan civilization, there was a South Indian civilization, there was an Eastern Indian civilization, and that is the narrative that is put forth by our academics, by our professors and teachers and our school and college and university textbooks. This is the narrative that has been put forth for decades. They are trying to fragment India into little pieces. Right? The truth is, we are now beginning to find evidence in southern India in a lot of different places. Kiladi is one of these places and there are many other archaeological sites, especially in, in Tamil Nadu and thereabouts. And there are, it's just the tip of the iceberg. So we are finding evidence of ancient settlements there that date back more than 2000 years. Now, if we look more, we're going to find uh, settlements that date back to the Harappan times. So just as India is an enormous interconnected country today, right? The same way India was an enormous interconnected civilization during the Harappan era. It's just that we have not bothered to look into the uh, archaeological sites in other parts of the country. Only Harappa and Mohenjo-daro and thereabouts we're looking. And that too, it's only what the British did. And after independence, almost nothing has happened. Just a few sites have been excavated. So I can guarantee you there are thousands and thousands of unexplored archaeological sites across southern India, across northeastern India, everywhere. Okay, they have found Harappan era sites even in Ladakh. So uh, they have found places, uh, in interesting uh, archaeological uh, sites in uh, Kiladi and thereabouts. They have found evidence of Brahmi language. They call it Tamil Brahmi for some reason to give a Tamil connotation. It's Brahmi. The Brahmi script developed in the Harappan region. At least that's what we know from the data that we have so far. In the future, if we find evidence that it developed in southern India, we will accept it. It's a question of seeing the data and the available data and making drawing conclusions based on that. So just because we have so little data, that's why our conclusions are most likely currently inaccurate. We need more data. We need more archaeological excavations. So I am firmly of the opinion that the whole of India, from the Harappan, uh, Sapta Sindhu region, to the east and northeast, from north in Gandhar, etc., et all the way to south, Tamil Nadu, Sri Lanka, it was all a vast inter interconnected civilization. It was just one civilization. It was not the Harappan civilization and the Tamil civilization, separate things. It was all the same. And future archaeology, if it is done, when it is done, is going to prove this. I guarantee that. India was just one enormous interconnected landmass and just one civilization and one culture, always, going back thousands of years. So that is what we're going to find. This is a prediction that I'm making. I don't have data right now because we have not bothered to find the data. But this is my prediction. I am making it in the open, which exposes me to possible uh, falsifying of my prediction. That's fine. We have to take a stand. So my prediction, guys, is that we're going to find evidence of a vast interconnected civilization all across India, which dates back to the Harappan and even pre-Harappan times. So let's wait and watch, and we will find out. Okay, this is a good question. Please tell us about the history of one of the longest lasting dynasties, the Ahoms. Now, no one has heard of the Ahoms in today's world because our textbooks, our teachers don't want to speak about the Ahoms. The Ahoms are one of the most important dynasties of India. They were uh, in power in Assam, in northeastern India, for around six centuries or thereabouts. 
they they first established their kingdom in the year the year after chinggis khan died 1228 it has nothing to do with chinggis khan i'm just remembering it that way it uh, helps me connect certain things so they they established this kingdom this uh, this dynasty in the year 1228 the ahom people are originally a thai people now who are the thai people the thai people are essentially a people from southeastern asia their original homeland is southeast asia uh, they were spread across thailand which is thailand the people of thailand are thai people just like the ancestors of the ahoms so they were originally spread the thai or dai people in southeast asia uh, in the region of burma thailand present day yunnan province of china which is not chinese at all etc that region and from there they crossed uh, over some hills uh, the hills at the border of india and burma present day border of india and burma and they came into assam and they established this wonderful very interesting dynasty in assam the the word assam comes from the ahom people right so and there were hindus of course the whole of southeast asia was hindu for a very long time then later it became buddhist but the ahoms have always been hindu so their culture was an interesting and beautiful syncretization of of the uh, culture of southeastern asia and of native indian uh, traditions and practices and what we call hinduism today it's a beautiful culture very interesting syncretic culture it's a very great dynasty they had many great kings okay and the most famous episode of the ahom history is the multiple repulsions of the turkic invasions of northeast india uh, the moguls the so called moguls were actually turks they tried many times to invade and take over the northeastern parts of india and the ahoms always repulsed this there is this famous battle uh, saraighat i think uh, the great uh, the great military commander lachit borpukhan borpukhan of the ahom dynasty he was one of the great ministers and military commanders of this dynasty in the 16th century i think he repulsed this uh, major turkic invasion it was a it was a it was a naval battle on the brahmaputra river and he ensured that the moguls the turks did not ever get to infiltrate into northeastern india so they did a great amount i mean they did yeoman service to the people of northeast india by protecting them from the advance of the foreigners and they were able to preserve their culture and the sanctity of the northeast for a very long time so assam is the land of the ahoms a wonderful culture and uh, we actually can discuss a much uh, a lot more about this it is regrettable that uh, the ahoms are not covered at all in india's history textbooks anywhere i don't know if uh, assam teaches the, the textbooks in assam teach about them or not but uh, everywhere else i mean it's only recently that people have started hearing about the ahoms there is this wonderful author called anish gokhale who has written about the about uh, some of the chapters of uh, ahom history so so it's good that uh, this is now coming to light and people are knowing about these different hitherto unknown dynasties of india which were actually very great and contributed so much to this great land so that's in brief about the ahoms uh, i hope and i would encourage everybody to read up more about the ahoms it's a very interesting phase of our history this is by darshana is per our vedic culture women and men were equally respected although the responsibilities were different we know vidushi and vidwan women used to work in ashrams used to participate in debates 
princesses, etc., were educated in management. Some were even skilled in warfare, were treated fairly. So how come girls were banished from education in the medieval period? What really brought about this gender-based split? Excellent question. I don't know how many of you know this, but many of the verses of the Rig Veda are written by women. Now show me any religious tradition anywhere in the world where the holiest and the oldest of the books are written by women. Show me one religious tradition anywhere outside of the Dharmic traditions where women have written the holy texts of that particular tradition. You will not find it anywhere else on this planet. So that is Vedic culture. That is Indian culture. Women always had the utmost respect in Indian society. Like you say, they used to go to war. There are many instances of, of Indian women going into war. This Sanawali excavation that I spoke about just a while ago, it has unearthed the, the royal burial of a female warrior. So that is again evidence that women had the highest of respect and the highest of responsibilities. And they could go to war just like men. Right. So women used to do everything, everything that uh, that was uh, appropriate based on the female biology and anatomy, right? But they used to go to war as well. So it's not like women were prevented from doing things when it was required. And women, like you said, they were in ashrams. They even wrote the hymns of the Rig Veda, many of the hymns of the Rig Veda. There was this very famous uh, uh, scholar called Gargi in Vedic times who could, uh, who could, uh, who could essentially intellectually outdo any man of her time and she had the highest of respect and honor. So that is the history of women in India. When did things change? Actually, things changed only very recently. Uh, there is this uh, scholar called uh, Dharampal who did a survey, who did a statistical uh, data collection of, of the data the British themselves had collected before they, they, they imposed the Macaulayan system of education. So they did a great vast survey of the Indian indigenous education system and they discovered that boys and girls were equal. They were treated equally. Both boys and girls were given education to all uh, levels in the pre-Macaulayan indigenous Indian education system. So even during the British era, boys and girls were treated equally. They both got the same education and there was no so-called caste divide or anything, or anything. Everybody got an education, even the so-called what is now classified as Dalits, etc. Everybody got an education. These are colonial myths. So how did this... Uh, there is definitely a different treatment of women in India in the past few hundred years. And that is a consequence of the foreign invasions and foreign occupation. So there was a time when men and women, they used to wear very little clothing in India because of the climate of India, which is hot and humid. If you see ancient paintings, Ajanta Elora, if you see ancient carving sculptures everywhere, anywhere in the, in the country, wherever sculptures and carvings have survived, you will find that men and women were basically topless. They did not wear any shirt or anything on the top. Sometimes they used to cover it with a thin cloth or something. And that was perfectly fine. There was no shame or any such thing. That was the mode of dressing of the ancient days. So how did women start wearing these enormous saris and covering their faces and all that? That happened after the Turkic invasions when this foreign culture came into India, which regarded women as pieces of meat. So that's why women had to start hiding and they had to, they had to retreat inside the household and men had to stay outside. 
and go and face the world. That's how this entire so-called apparent patriarchal customs started. It was a survival mechanism. It was a defense mechanism. There was the only way you could preserve the dignity of your women. So that's how they started. And the and after the Mughals or the Turks were defeated by the British, uh, by sorry, not by the British, by the Marathas, by, by Chhatrapati Shivaji. And that's what the British took advantage of after they defeated the Marathas themselves. So the British brought in their own twisted morality, their Victorian and whatever else morality. In the West, women are treated in an atrocious manner. I mean, just look at the witch hunting and witch burning and all that that, that is present throughout the medieval ages of Europe. The most popular book in the medieval ages in Europe was the Maleus Maleficarum, the hammer of the witches, which prescribed different horrible ways of torturing and killing women who were accused of being witches. Now, how, when was the woman accused of being a witch? When she had some ancient knowledge, some pre-Christian knowledge, which dated back to the ancient Indo-European culture. So that was a way of stamping out the ancient indigenous culture of Europe. And it was a way of, of putting women in that place. And that is the morality that the British brought into India. And then they enforced that in a variety of ways. So it is these backward, primitive, foreign influences in India that brought about the decline of the status of women. In India's indigenous culture, women always had the highest of regard, the highest of respect, and the highest of status. In the highest of status. That's what we have always seen throughout India's history. Look at the stories of the Mahabharat, the Ramayana, the other tales, the other uh, anecdotes, all the other evidence that comes comes forth. Look at the status that uh, Maharani Ahilya Bhai Holkar had. Right? I mean, just look at the great women of this country and the things they have done. You will not see any woman anywhere else in the world who would do anything like that. So that is the status that women had in India. It is regrettable that things changed and we should we should hearken back to who we truly are okay this is a long question what is the real truth of sati pratha i studied in history class that raja ram mohan roy the great great man the great reformer stopped the sati pratha with the help of the british and people like rajiv dikshit say it's fake etc so what is true? What's the real history? What's the reason behind this practice? Uh, this, uh, if what he says, then no such killing should happen in the country where gods and goddesses are worshipped equally. Please spread some light on it. Okay, first of all, Raja Ram Mohan Roy was no saint. Okay, he was a British agent. He was a stooge of the British. When India's historians glorify somebody to the, to the high heavens, it is a sure, short sign that that person was a British agent. Okay, I encourage you to look up Raja Ram Mohan Roy's true history. Everything is available online. Google Raja Ram Mohan Roy and look up what you find. Look up his own writings. Don't look up what other people have said about him. Those are opinions. I would like you to read what Raja Ram Mohan Roy himself wrote. The letters he wrote to the British administrators and the kings and what he was saying in those letters. He was saying that we need to educate the Indians. Indians are backward. They, they still worship the Vedas. They still study the Vedas. Sanskrit is a backward language. We need to educate them. We need to liberate them from the chains of backward Hinduism, etc. Look up Raja Ram Mohan Roy's own writings and then you will know the truth about this stooge of the British. Now, what about Sati Pratha? Right? 
So we are told that Ram Mohan Roy abolished this horrible barbaric practice. We are told that Lord William Bentick, the great reformer, viceroy of India, did an enormous favor to the people of India by abolishing this horrible practice of burning our women. So I would like to ask you a question, my friends. And I want you to ask your, this question to yourself and answer it for yourself. You don't have to answer me. Answer this simple question. In the living memory of your family, only your family, not the neighbor's family, in the living memory of your own family, is there any recollection of any of your ancestors, female ancestors or, or relatives committing sati? Has anybody in your family, in living memory, in the last 100, 200, 500, 1000 years, has anyone ever committed sati? I have asked this question to countless people. And the answer is always the same. Not in my family. It's always somewhere else. It's in the textbooks. Now, who wrote these textbooks? It's the British. Let me answer, ask you another question. We had these horrific famines during the British times. The British engineered famine after famine after famine in India because Indians were great fighters and you can't fight if you're famished. If you can't fight, if you are starving. So they engineered famine after famine in India. Hundreds of millions of Indians died. I'm not kidding. It's not a small number. I know it's a horrific number. At conservative estimates, at least 100 million people died. You can just add up the numbers that you will find in history records. So if so many Indians died, why weren't there millions of cases of sati? Why? I mean, if sati was so widespread, it was such a horrible disease of the society. Why weren't there millions of cases of sati during all these famines that took place? I, uh, I mean, is there any answer to that? Here's one more, one more example. One of the great queens of, of recent times, uh, Ahalya Bai Holkar, when she became a widow, she wanted to commit sati because she, she felt lost without her, without her husband. So it was an optional thing. Some people would do it. And she was strongly dissuaded by her father-in-law the father of her husband. He said, do not do it. I will not allow you to take such a step. So she listened to him and she went on to be one of the, to become one of the greatest and saintliest queens of the past recent memory in India. So once again, you have an example of one individual who wants to leave the world in this manner. And she is dissuaded by her family member, by her father-in-law from doing it. So it is the opposite of what people say. No one was forcing anybody to commit sati. You may have one or two random cases here and there and those are then spread everywhere as if it is the uh, as if it is the norm and not the exception. This atrocity literature of sati, it's called atrocity literature. It was popularized by British missionaries who came to India with a singular intention to destroy Indian culture and convert everybody to their foreign religion. So to do that, they had to weaken the foundations of Indian's culture and they had to portray India's culture as barbaric and primitive and backward. So they took, they found a few here and there random incidences across the country, a few of them, and they started writing this atrocity literature that Indians burned their women alive when these women became become widows. And the thing is this, in India, Self-immolation is an ancient practice. It is usually an act of protest or it is an act, act of penance. And this is spread throughout the Dharmic world, not just in India. In the 1960s, there was this uh, famous Vietnamese monk who 
burned himself alive, who self-immolated because in order to protest the or the forcible Christianization of his country. So this happened in Vietnam. It is a man. You will see many instances, instances of men in India self-immolating in protest or, or in penance. Okay, I can give examples. I will not go into that right now. And such practices are, were spread throughout the ancient Indo-European world. So this popular notion that Indians practice this horrible, this horrible practice, it is uh, an invention, a creation of Western missionaries in order to malign India's culture and in order to weaken the foundations of India's culture and to precipitate the spread of their religion into India. So this is an ent entirely a lie. And we need to educate ourselves about what the truth really is. Okay, Jishnu asks, can you please tell us about Vikramaditya's empire, the legendary king Vikramaditya? So what we know about Vikramaditya comes from the uh, era that is named after him, first of all, the Vikram Samvat era. I think it dates back to 57 or 27 BC or thereabouts. I think 57 BC, 56 or 57 BC. So that is the reign, that is the the year that the Vikram Samvat era starts, it is the year in which this great king is said to have repulsed an invasion by the Scythians into India, the Shakas. So this era was, uh, was started to commemorate his victory over the invading Scythians. Now, we know very little about this great king. The, the only thing we know is that we have an entire era named after him, which is a very, which is uh, an honor that is given to very, very few people. So we have an entire era named after him. We have many future kings, subsequent kings, who took the name Vikramaditya in honor of this great original Vikramaditya. And yet our historians in India, they say that Vikramaditya was a mythical king. He's a myth. He's a legend. He's not reality. Now, I want you to understand this very well. When an Indian historian, especially a bunch of Indian historians, say that something is a myth, it means that they are trying to hide something very important and very valuable. So, as of now, we don't have much evidence of Vikramaditya, the great king of Ujjain. He is believed to have conquered a very large kingdom. It is all regarded as myths. It is all... Uh, portrayed as myth in by, by India's historians and in India's history textbooks, which most likely don't even mention him. But he was, in my opinion, a very, very great king of India, one of the greatest kings of the past two, three thousand years. So that's all we know about him as of now. We know that he was king in Ujjain. Ujjain, the great ancient city, was his capital. So that's what we know about him. I I would say that we need to do more research into this great personality because there are so many incredible stories about this man. They can't, if there are so many stories about some person, so many ancient memories that have been passed on from generation to generation to generation, it means that there is a great deal of truth to it. Because after, like I said, our universities were destroyed and libraries burned, the only means of passing down information for our ancestors was to pass it down orally. So they faithfully, dutifully passed down all these things that they had learned to their children and to their descendants, generation after generation in an oral manner. So these are very important stories. We should not trivialize them as myths. 
these are our ancient oral stories our oral histories and we need to take them extremely seriously and we need to look into the actual facts behind them and the way to do it is to look into archaeology and uh, other means so i think that vikramaditya was definitely a real king and one of the greatest kings of india and i would like to wait for more data and information about him as and when it becomes available priyam asks recently i read a book called the nine unknown men by talbot mundy in which he talked about a secret society formed by ashok called nine unknown men was this secret society real does it still exist does it hold any influence in the world etc well so when you have a secret society its purpose is to remain secret it will not make itself known so this story has is is a very persistent story it doesn't go away maybe there is some truth to it we don't know was it ashok who founded this the society of nine secret men was it somebody before him we don't know it is said that these are nine people nine individuals who hold a certain amount of expert who hold hold expertise in a certain field a certain very important field and who know certain ancient secret knowledge that will be useful to the country when that and it will be revealed when the time is right so these are not said to be agents of political change they are simply preservers of ancient and valuable knowledge so that is the story this if it is true if it is a real secret society that they will not reveal themselves they may be hidden in plain sight they may be people you even know but they will never reveal themselves they may they may hold a great deal of knowledge an enormous amount of knowledge from the old days or even the new days and maybe when the time is right when the situation in india is better they may help the civilization with this knowledge that they have preserved and they may not even reveal themselves and their identities even then so that is what i can speculate does it really exist i don't know uh, i hope it does i don't know if it has any connection with the illuminati which is a western thing i think if the nine unknown men do exist nine unknown men or women okay if it does exist then i don't think it has any connection with the illuminati the illuminati is something else entirely this is an indian thing so maybe i don't know maybe it does and i hope it does okay till when was nepal a part of india and why did it separate it separated in 1947 i'll tell you let me tell you the recent history first and then go into the older history so in the 1950s king tribhuvan of nepal met our great prime minister shri shri jawaharlal nehru and he requested the great nehru ji to kindly allow his country to reintegrate with india he king prithviran prithvi narayan shah wanted to reintegrate nepal with india because nepal belongs with india and this is something that has been it is not a story i have made up look it up online google it and you will find the evidence this is multi source evidence it's not one person who is saying it okay so this is a matter of record prithvi narayan shah wanted wished to reintegrate nepal with india because nepal has always belonged with india nepal has always been a part of india's civilization and geography 
and uh, the very wise mr nehru denied his request he said that you need to stay separate from india uh, why he did that i can not guess his mind was very enigmatic so the fact that the king of nepal wanted to come back into india tells you that nepal has always been a part of india it's not a separate culture it's not a separate nation i mean it is a separate nation today it's not a separate culture it's not a separate ethnicity of peoples it is nothing different the indians and nepalis are the same people it's the same culture even the gorkhas are ancient worshippers of the great saint goraknath right that's where the name gorkha comes from so nepal has always been culturally ethnically and historically been part of the indian subcontinent the great gautam buddha was born in lumbini which is currently part of nepal right so some nepalese uh, nationalists said that he was nepalese so let's go back into when nepal actually emerged as a separate political entity so nepal the region of nepal is in the himalayas there is a southern part called the tarai region which is more which is more of plains it is more flat and the northern region is the uh, is the pahad region or the hills of nepal kathmandu is in the pahad region and the political elite today of nepal is from the northern region and they look down upon the southerners and consider them to be agents of india so this region has always been a small a bunch of small kingdoms it is in the 18th century somewhere in the 1700s that a king called prithvi narayan shah did a small bunch of conquests he unified this territory and he started he he founded this kingdom from the nevar valley from which it got the nevar kingdom name and it became nepal eventually so this was a kingdom one of the many kingdoms one of the many fragmented kingdoms of india during the turkic and british occupations of india now uh the british when they ruled india they wished to use this territory of nepal as a buffer state between india and tibet because tibet was the, at that time coming in under chinese influence to some extent the chinese were trying to make claims to tibet so the british wanted some separation between these activities and their uh, their territory that they they had captured which is india so they did not annex nepal into the british raj into the british empire they allowed nepal to be nominally outside of the british empire and that is the genesis of this current situation where nepal is outside of india okay the nepalese people they speak indian languages either maithili or bhojpuri or or madesi or or various other languages of northern india right gorkha limbu all that is also there definitely it's a very interesting myth, mix of ethnicities all within one umbrella so it is because the british refused they decided to keep nepal separate and not annex it that nepal remained a separate political entity and after independence for for i don't know for what reason india did not reintegrate nepal or sri lanka into india it is all uh, due to our great statesman mr nehru to whom we have to thank for all these uh, eventualities that we are uh seeing right now so that is in brief about why nepal is currently not as of now not a part of india kushal asks in the 1971 war why was bangladesh not made part of india well i would also like to ask this question it is a territory that 
has always been a part of the Indian civilization of the Indian subcontinent and it is a territory we conquered by military means so we had the right to reintegrate the territory rightfully into India by by right of conquest we conquered it we freed them from the Pakistani barbarians who were who were massacring millions of people there they massacred uh, at least minimum two million people in seven months right so India freed the Bengalis from Pakistani occupation, the army, the Indian army did this. And then the political leadership of India decided that Bangladesh, that, that this part of Bengal should remain separate from India. And today we have a situation where these Bangladeshis are very much part of India. They have infiltrated throughout India. The border is mostly by its de facto open. They can come in anytime they want. And there are millions of Bangladeshis throughout India. Right? So I don't understand why Bangladesh was not made part of India. Because they are anyway living in India in very large numbers. So it is a question that only the the political leadership of that time can answer. I it it I fail to understand why Bangladesh was not made part of India. We conquered the land, we freed the land of the terrorists, of the barbarians, of the murderers, and yet we let it go its own separate way. And it has this decision has been very Basically, it has been very harmful for India. It has not helped India in any way. It has not helped the people of Bangladesh also. They have faced a great deal of mismanagement, misgovernance. They were under military rule for a very long time, etc. So uh, I fail to understand why Bangladesh was not made part of India. And this is a question that I, I wonder why people have not asked much until today. So good question. Adwait asks, could you give us an insight in the, into the astronomical research undertaken in ancient India? How were, they, how were our ancient gurus able to predict the shape of the earth, its distance from the sun, and all that? Thank you, Adwait. So our ancient gurus were not merely religious gurus. They were scientists. They were astronomers. We had an enormous... We had a very, very ancient tradition of astronomical observations. Uh, let me uh, let me show you an example of that. One second. Let me just briefly share an image with you. Okay. So take a look at this. This is something we found in Kashmir. They found carvings in, in Kashmir, in the Kashmir Valley, which are about 6,000 years old. And it represents, it, it, de it depicts two suns in the sky with various constellations drawn around them. So you know exactly where this event happened. So it seems there were two suns in the sky about 6,000 years ago between these various constellations. So scientists at the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, TIFR, actually did some analysis of this. They looked back at the astronomical data of what happened many thousand years ago. And they found that there was a supernova, a dying, uh, an exploding star that exploded around six, around 4,600 BCE. It's called supernova HB9. It, it occurred precisely where it is depicted in this ancient 6,000-year-old carving. It tells you that Indians have been recording astronomical events for thousands of years. And India had the most accurate ancient calendar of all time. The Indian traditional lunisolar calendar is even today more accurate than the current Western calendar we use today, January, February, all that. 
so our calendar is was so precise because of thousands of years of astronomical observations and data collection tycho brahe got data from indian astronomers via jesuit priests so there was there was a great deal of indian astronomical data that the jesuits stole from india brought to europe and his student kepler johannes kepler used all this voluminous data to compile the three kepler kepler's laws of motion so all of this data this incredible amount of ancient data came from india and much of western science if not most of western science is founded on a bedrock of indian science and astronomy and that is something that is denied today so indians the ancient indian gurus were scientists they were not just religious gurus we had many schools of philosophical thought including uh, atomism uh, and uh, you had a uh, things like nyaya and various other schools which were basically scientific schools of thought they they had actual models of the universe and, the, and models of the world the sage kanada was an atomist he is the first human being known to earth known to us who propounded the atomic hypothesis that everything is made up of atoms and so on so india has a very 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 old thousands of years old scientific tradition which is why we were able to make so many ancient discoveries and when the greeks came to india during the time of chandragupta maurya when seleucus nicator sent his emissaries to chandragupta these greeks recorded that indians had a calendar called the saptarshi calendar that dated back to 6000 something bce that's 8008 more than 8000 years before today and they had lineages of thousands of kings so that is our ancient historical tradition we had an extremely precise calendar that took into account the precession of the of the equinoxes and much more it it can only be done if you have thousands of years of of astronomical data and very astronomical very accurate astronomical data so that's in brief about india's ancient scientific and astronomical traditions okay this is by neva deka this is a question i get all the time lots of you have asked this please tell us about the ancient education system i think i have spoken about this before but why not do it again so india's ancient education system dates back many many thousands of years it was uh, it was based at the lowest levels it has it had lots of hierarchical steps levels at the lowest levels education was given in temples so temples were centers of education every town every city every village every neighborhood had a temple and they would have a, a priest there a priest who would not only officiate in religious functions but who was also an educator so these uh, gurus essentially would educate the small children of the of the locality at at the very basic fundamental level they would they would be taught basic language grammar they would be taught the mother tongue they would be taught sanskrit they would be taught grammar they would be taught basic math and various other basic subjects as you grew older you would go on to a larger temple where you would got get more advanced education the great temples of the country the really great ones would provide very high level education to to those who had the intellectual capability to to take it and then you had the great viharas of india where you had religious uh, uh, religious philosophies and traditions that were uh, that were taught so you had great mahaviharas etc especially during the buddhist times which also taught the vedas etc 
and then you had the great universities takshashila nalanda tilhara vikramshila udantapuri sharda peet many 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 more we have lost track of how many universities we have they are all in ruins today thanks to the turkic invaders so this university let's take nalanda the most famous one nalanda was destroyed when it was when it was uh, when india was in the buddhist so called era so many of these teachers in nalanda were buddhist monks the last recorded teacher in nalanda is was an was a was a gentleman called rahul shri bhadra he was teaching a small class of, of about 50 students even after the university was destroyed and he was in his 90s at that time so nalanda was a center of buddhist education and the same teachers who taught what is now called buddhism also taught the vedas also taught all kinds of other subjects so everything was taught there in these great universities and the only barrier to admission was your intellect so you would have to go through a series of examinations and and oral tests you would have to answer questions by, from the great gurus and if you were able to answer these questions satisfactorily then you would be given admission to the university and all education was entirely free it was all subsidized and funded by the local kings the entire universities were subsidized by the kings the sal- there was no salary everybody lived there the teachers the students they were they were living quarters all the food was provided everything was taken care of by the local king or emperor whoever it was so education throughout india was always free healthcare throughout india was always free that is the mark of a civilization of a truly civilized society education and healthcare if you have to pay for it it means you are living in a backward society and india always imparted education and healthcare for free so that is the system of of education men and women were all equally allowed even foreigners were allowed if they could pass the exams there was no so called uh, the so called caste or class divide that we speak about today there was no such thing everybody was allowed in the in the in the education system as long as they had the intellectual capacity for that even foreigners even greeks came came as students scythians there were there are records of scythian students and even chinese students so if foreigners were allowed into this system why wouldn't the other indians be allowed so that is in brief about the indian education system it is the most advanced system of education the world has ever seen education itself was invented in india and it has been going on for thousands of years at the lowest level it was called the guru shishya parampara so you would spend several years with a guru and that guru would teach you most of what you needed to know especially when you were in a certain trade if you were if you were a warrior then your guru would teach you the vedas the shastras the language mathematics and martial arts an example is drona drona dronacharya the uh, teacher of the kauravas and pandavas in the mahabharat especially the kauravas isn't it so that is so that is how old this education system was and it is a uh, it's it is regrettable that we have replaced it with this primitive backward colonial system that is currently in place today especially the commercialization of education which is which is extremely uh, harmful to the long term prospects of the country so education is all about preparing the future generations of the country to be great to be good productive citizens and to be great leaders in the future that is the purpose of education and today's education system is not geared towards that it's just a commercial system which churns out degrees in exchange for cash so it is a great step backward for india but i hope that 
some at some point in time we will try and reform this okay my friends this is it for the pre selected questions i'm going to take some live questions now okay let let's take a look uh kunal asks one second can indian scientists of today learn from vedic knowledge on a variety of topics from metallurgy to economics we can learn things like philosophy and and uh, real politic how to approach uh, geopolitical issues how to approach uh state uh, the administration of the country what kind of laws should be in effect how to deal with various issues of society because social issues etc are something that it's something that uh, that has always been around so all those things we can definitely learn from uh, the ancient vedic knowledge and from the arthashastra etc which is a great book on on governance among other things as far as science goes we have much more scientific knowledge and data today our science has advanced a great deal over the past 1000 years indian science stopped 1000 years ago when all the scientists and teachers were killed and all the libraries were burned so the information our scientists had at that time was what was the latest information 1000 years before today they did not have access to the data and the information that we have today they did not have telescopes they did not have particle accelerators they did not have all the various instruments we have today if they had this information and this this scientific uh, technology they would have gone much further than what we have gone today but they were all killed 1000 years ago and that's why indian science and philosophy has not advanced in the past 1000 years even one inch now our scientists cannot really learn anything from vedic knowledge because vedic knowledge was the latest and most advanced knowledge of that time of of many thousand years ago what we can learn is the approach they took and the and we can take inspiration from these great great scientists and scholars and we can learn things like like i said statecraft and philosophy and much more as far as science goes we need to take inspiration from them and 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 take it further from where we are today and the th- the interesting thing is that there may be some inspiration to be taken especially in the field of quantum physics from ancient indian philosophy because there seems to be some sort of relationship there is a reason why every physicist every quantum physicist once they reach a certain level of maturity they are invariably drawn towards indian philosophy towards vedanta etc so there is definitely a great deal to learn from and to draw inspiration from in ancient indian knowledge definitely so that's a good question this is by webhav uh, webhav asks please throw some light on the vedic rashmi theory i regret that i do not know anything about this theory uh i i'm i'm afraid i can't answer your question i will look it up this theory whatever it is and i'll try to answer it in a future episode uh so so that's that's about it i i i have only studied science thus far as far as the vedic uh, texts go i am not that that conversant with every aspect of it and therefore i unfortunately fall short on knowledge on this particular question i will look it up and i will try and answer it in a future question but thank you for the question i appreciate it
Madhurya asks, what's the difference between the Mughals and the Delhi Sultans? Their origin, t- war tactics, culture, etc. The culture is the same. Turks, they were all Turks. So the Delhi Sultanate, which you, which you, which you speak about, it started as a slave dynasty, the Mamluk dynasty. Now people ask me, why do you say Mamluk when you talk about the Delhi Sultanate? The Mamluks are Egyptians. No. Mamluk is a word, it's an Arabic word, which means slave. So there were Mamluks in Egypt, there were Mamluks among the Turks. So these Turks who formed the Delhi Sultanate, they were slaves from Central Asia. They were Turkic slaves who came into India as generals. These people, they employed slaves as generals if they showed promise and and ability. So these Mamluks, they invaded northern India. They took over certain parts of northern India. And eventually they separated from their original dynasty and became kings in their own right. Sultans in their own right. So this gave rise to the Mamluk dynasty, the slave dynasty, Balban, Iltutmish, uh, his daughter Razia for a year or two, etc. So that is their origin. They were Turks. The so-called Mughals were also Turks, right? So there is not much difference in the ethnicity. There is no difference in the culture or the language. So they were just basically two different waves of Turkic invaders. That's what it was. Nothing else. Let's find some more questions. So Mayank asks, how was our polytheistic religion able to withstand the invasions of monotheistic people, whereas many others such as those of the Greeks, Romans, Egyptians could not? It's probably because India's culture is so ancient. It's probably because India is the homeland of the entire Indo-European bouquet of cultures. And the people of India valued their culture to such a great extent that they were able to withstand this barbarism for a thousand years, which is still ongoing to some extent. Right? So I think it is because the Indians valued their culture so much. They were willing to put the culture and their their beliefs above their lives. So many Indians gave up their lives. Millions and millions of Indians gave up their lives, but they would not give up their culture. And you see the same thing among the Romani people today who are wandering across Europe, stateless people, marginalized, oppressed people in so-called progressive Europe, right? The Romanis are forced, have been forced to change their religion wherever they are. In Turkey, they are Muslims. In, in Europe, they are mostly Christians. And yet, beneath this apparent Abrahamic uh, culture that they have embraced, they still, even today, continue their traditions, their ancient Indian Hindu traditions, to whatever extent they can. Because they know, they, they value their traditions so much much more than their lives. So that is the reason why why our polytheistic culture, despite being apparently so disunited, was able to withstand this when the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, etc. could not withstand this, right? So the Greeks, like I mentioned in a previous, a previous episode, are a descendant of the Alina uh, clan of the Rig Vedic people. So they too brought with them a Vedic and post-Vedic culture. And that's what became the Greek pantheon of gods, which is the same as the Vedic pantheon with different names. So theirs is a most recent, is a, is a more recent culture than Indian culture. And that's why it probably crumbled. The Romans too were an offshoot to some extent of the Greeks. They had the same pantheon of gods with different names. So that they too uh, crumbled. It's because their emperor Constantine decided to adopt Christianity as the state religion. And he started persecuting the 
uh, people who still continued Roman, ancient Roman traditions. So it's a complicated history. How it happened uh, is well brought out in a book called The Darkening Age. It's by Catherine Nixie. I would recommend you guys look it up. So I think to, to wrap this question up, Indians valued their ancient culture and traditions so much that they were willing to basically gut it out. They were willing to give up their lives, but they would not give up their culture. And that's why Hinduism and all the Dharmic traditions still survive to some extent in India today, even though even today there is a concerted, concerted effort to dismantle all this. I think it's going to still go on surviving. It will thrive again in the future. Okay, let me see some more. Yusinor asks, who were the Vanar Sena of Ram? Was it really an army of monkeys or was it a symbolic way of calling them? What about Lord Hanuman? Well, that is something we can only speculate about. Some other people have also asked me this question. Some other people have asked, were there the Neanderthal people? So that's an interesting speculation. As far as we know, the Neanderthal people died out. The Neanderthals were a separate subspecies of humans who interbred with us. All of us outside of Africa today have about 4 to 6% of Neanderthal DNA. So they haven't really died out. They live on in us. Our ancestors, to some extent, were Neanderthals. But the separate subspecies seems to have died out about 40 or 30,000 years ago. Now, is it possible that some isolated pockets of Neanderthals continued to exist in some parts of India until recently, around 10,000 or so years ago? It is not impossible. We haven't found evidence of this, hard evidence, archaeological evidence. It's, but we also haven't looked. So it is possible that this eventuality or this, this speculation may possibly, perhaps, be correct. It is not proven, but it is something that we may want to look into. And uh, Hanuman, Lord Hanuman was one of their greatest warriors, obviously, and a great devotee of our Lord, of our King Ram, of Lord Ram. So that's what I can say about this. We don't really know what this Vandersena was. It's a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting part of our ancient history. So, and in, it's surprising that uh, nobody has <laughs> tried to investigate this. I hope that uh, more this these these questions will be taken up more seriously in the future, as the as the as the in the coming days. So, great question. Okay, let me find some more. Okay, please please wait for a minute. Let me find some interesting questions. Okay, what is the reason for behind the shifting of the Chola dynasty from Kaveri Patnam to Gangai Konda Cholapuram. China is the inventor of silk, but why the silk of Kanchipuram is so famous for ancient from ancient times? Okay, so I don't know the specific reason why the Cholas shifted their capital from one place to another. These things happen from time to time. Sometimes the climate changes, or sometimes there are political reasons for this. So I am not really sure why the change of the of, of the capital from one place to another happened. As far as the silk goes. Well, you will be told that China invented silk. But now let me tell you something. 
they have discovered archaeologists have discovered strands of silk woven silk in the ancient harappan cities in the harappan civilization the harappan phase of indian civilization and it is at least as old if not older than the earliest evidence of chinese silk right so we were we were we were doing silk farming on our own completely separate from the chinese and the harappan civilization the harappan phase is much 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 more older than the chinese civilization so most likely silk farming was actually invented in india the mulberry tree which is home to the silkworm is very much present in india persia central asia and our people were spread across all these regions so it is in my opinion very likely that silk farming actually originated in the western regions of india the saptasindhu harappan region much before the chinese ever discovered silk maybe it spread from india to china through the silk road so these are all speculations but the hard evidence says that silk was in india it was discovered in india at least as long ago as the chinese discovered it if not more so that's an interesting factoid Rohan asks regarding the brahmastra do you think advanced weapons used in mahabharat how how were they made by some chants why doesn't it exist now we don't have a, any hard scientific evidence of brahmastra so we can only speculate uh did we have ancient technology in those days we haven't found any evidence of it thus far so we can what we can say as of now is that maybe it existed how was it made unless we find the weapon and we can examine it we can't we can't really say how it was made we can't even say if it really existed what is clear is that we had these ideas and these memories of very powerful weapons from old days so unless and until we discover some evidence some artifacts of such powerful weapons we cannot really make someone like me cannot make any comments about it because i don't have sufficient data and it clearly doesn't exist today today the most powerful weapons we have are the w nuclear bombs of the americans and the and the and the tsar bomba if the russians still have it so these are nuclear weapons that's the most powerful weaponry we have today as far as these uh, brahmastra and other astras of the mahabharat if they did exist they have uh, become they have, their knowledge has been it looks like the knowledge has been no, has been lost so that's what i can say today Vipul asks please suggest books for ancient indian civilization i have a separate video on my channel in which i have done some book recommendations about ancient india so maybe you want to look it up uh, there's not there's never enough books but you can start with some of those books that i have mentioned in that video so please look it up this is a good question sorry yes this one here in my state there's always a clash that tamil is older than sanskrit please tell us the truth here is the truth my whatever i am telling you is based on the data that i have it be, it's based on the best knowledge that we have as of today and the best knowledge that we have of as of today indicates that sanskrit may be older than tamil <clears throat> excuse me the oldest evidence that we have of sanskrit dates back to to around 3 uh, and 1/2000 years ago it is found surprisingly of all places in present day syria 
in the Mittani kingdom. So there are these tablets by a horse master called Kikuli in which he uses Sanskrit terminology and there is a treaty between two kingdoms in which they invoke Rig Vedic gods. So this is the oldest hard inscribed evidence of Sanskrit. It is clear that Sanskrit is much older than that because these are pre, these are post-Vedic, post-Rig Vedic people, these Mitanni and the other kingdom, the Hittites. So Sanskrit as we know from the information that we have, from the unambiguous information that we have, it is much more than 3,500 years old. Maybe it's much, much older than that. If the Rig Veda is as old as we as we think it is, at least 8,000 years old, then that's how old Rig Vedic Sanskrit is. Now about Tamil. The oldest evidence we have found as of today is from Sangam literature, the great Sangam era of, of Tamil of the Tamil part of India's civilization. So this dates back to around 500 BCE. And we have found Tamil inscriptions even in Egypt, even in Southeast Asia. But the oldest that we have found thus far, the oldest date we can ascribe as of today is 500 BCE or thereabouts. Now here's the thing. In our ancient tradition, one of the sages, one of the ancient Rig Vedic sages was sage Agastya. He dates back to the Rig Vedic time, which is around 8,000 years old at least. Right, and he is considered to be he is worshipped as he is revered as the father of the Tamil language. So, if this ancient cultural memory, this ancient civilization memory is correct, then Tamil and Sanskrit are as old as each other. Okay, and this ancient, this entire uh, idea of Tamil being a separate civilization and Sanskrit being separate, it's all absolute nonsense. There is plenty of Sanskrit in Tamil, and there may be. Tamil words in Sanskrit as well. So we need to find out the truth behind the antiquity of our great sage Agastya. How old ago did he live? And if it is true that he is indeed the founder of the Tamil language or the first compiler of Tamil grammar, then it tells us that Tamil also is around 8,000 years old or thereabouts. So this is something that needs to be investigated further and with great amount of seriousness because these are two of our of our great classical languages, two of the greatest languages of the ent- entire world. So we definitely need to look into it but this clash of Tamil versus Sanskrit, this is all politically motivated. Politicians are trying to create divides between people because unless there is a fight, unless there is a divide, there will be they will not get any votes. So we need to look beyond politics. We need to look beyond propaganda. We need to ignore the lies our academic system is telling us. And we just need to look at the evidence and the data that we have. So that is my view about it. I think that if Agastya is proven to be one of the Vedic sages, and we can find his actual age when he actually lived, then it indicates that Tamil is that much old, which would indicate it is many, many thousands of years older than what we currently know for sure that it is. So that's in brief about this specific question. Okay, let me take a couple of more questions. I'll take some super chats. Kuldeep asks, why are international scientists not acknowledging India's contribution in great ancient technology and ancient astronomical discoveries? See, the scientists of the world, they are not concerned with history. They just do science. They learn science in school, in college, in university, and 
post university from textbooks and research papers and all that and they never know what where it came from they don't really know where the math came from where this ancient data came from all that and the science we are doing today it's all modern science it's it's post quantum world science right so the majority i would say 99.9% of scientists don't have any idea about the history of science about the ancient lineage of all these discoveries so that is the number one reason why scientists don't know about this secondary secondly the science the historians of science are trying to deny india's contributions most of the historians of science are eurocentric historians they are all in the western world how many historians of science do you have in india zero as far as i know i may be wrong i i don't know everything in the world but as far as i know there is no real uh high quality historian of science that i know of in india and all the historians of science are from the west and their perspective is always eurocentric it's sometimes quite dogmatic and it is these historians of science who are actively denying india's contributions but how long will they deny facts the facts will speak for themselves it's only a matter of time yash asks are sindhis or sindhi civilization descendants of the harappan civilization we are all descendants of the harappan era of india's civilization the harappan phase was a specific limited phase of india's civilization india's civilization is much older than that harappa mohenjodaro is currently in sindh it doesn't mean these are sindhis these are ancient indians after the climate change happened after all these rivers started drying out after the saraswati declined and disappeared these people who lived in the saptasindhu region migrated eastwards to various parts to various other parts of india so we are all the same people our genetics are the same you do your dna test it will be almost the same as mine almost the same as somebody in south or north or east or west so we are all the descendants of this ancient phase of india's civilization which is around around 5 6 7000 years old So Sindhis, yes, of course, they are descendants of the Harappan civilization. They carry the torch forward, and so do everybody else in India, and in Afghanistan, and in Pakistan, etc. So that's the answer, my friend. Let me find some more. Namaste, Siddhant. Ancient Greeks seem to have a lot in common in terms of mythology, philosophy. architecture arts medicine etc did the hellenic folks also study in our universities at the time we don't have hard evidence of it but we know that some scythians did study in india some uh, some scholars of scythian origin and we also know that we had this indo greek phase of india civilization which lasted for about 200 years right after uh, seleucus nicator fought with chandragupta and then became his father in law so there was this indo greek phase of india civilization where the greeks lived they conquered these uh, western parts of india they became indianized they intermingled with the people they became indian and greek at the same time and many of them would have studied in various universities for sure takshashila was right there in the saptasindhu region which was for some time ruled by these people and we know that uh, king milinda or menander he made contributions to indian stupas and universities far to the east all the way to bihar so i am certain that there was a lot of greek presence in our ancient universities and it is possible sir that some of this 
some of these cultural influences and scientific knowledge, etc., may have flowed westwards back into Greece. It is a possibility. As of now, we don't have unambiguous evidence of that, but it is a very strong possibility for sure. So yes, your 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 question is very much valid. Okay, let me take two more questions. This is by Rohan. When Alexander came into India, he defeated Poros and got back. The reason is unknown. Is it because he was actually scared of war elephants, which Indian kings were using, as he has never faced them? The truth, in my opinion, from the data and information that I have that I have come across thus far from my extensive reading and research, what I understand is that Alexander did not win against Porus. I think he suffered a catastrophic defeat in the battle of the Jhelum or the Ravi, was it? That river. So I believe that Alexander actually suffered a catastrophic defeat which led to a great injury of his, which eventually caused his death when he limped back to Babylon. There is no evidence from Indian sources of any Alexander at all. Indian sources don't even mention this guy, even though they mention Seleucus Nicator, who was Alexander's general and who became the became Alexander's successor. So Indian sources extensively mentioned Seleucus Nicator, but they failed to mention Alexander at all, which indicates that at least to Indian historians and Indians of that time, Seleucus was a much greater king than this Alexander, who was not even worthy of a single mention. So if we look at Greek accounts, it looks like he was a great conqueror. He conquered Western India and then went back because his troops were tired. But if you look at the entirety of the picture, including India's, the Indian version of events, then it becomes clear that Greek sources are a fabrication. He most likely suffered a terrible defeat in India and limped back injured to Babylon where he died of his wounds sustained in battle against a small Indian chieftain on the western borders of India. So that is my opinion of what happened. And that gels with what Marshal Zhukov, a Russian military strategist and historian, said many, many decades ago. He also said the same thing, that Alexander most likely lost this battle, this, this battle in the western region of India when he was trying to invade. And it led to his eventual death. Okay, my friends. Uh, okay, one last question. Please suggest a good translation of Arthashastra. Uh, if you look at my uh, my other video about uh, book recommendations, it's on my channel, on this channel. You will see one of the uh, English versions of the Arthashastra. So you can look it up and you'll find the answer over there. Okay, my friends, it's been an hour and a half. Great session, good fun answering all these questions. I'm going to stop here today. Please keep your questions coming. We're going to have many more sessions on history. It's a fascinating topic. It's a very large topic, a vast topic. I know you have many more questions. I know I have not answered many questions. I'm going to keep doing this. Okay. So thank you for being with me today, tonight. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye.